listening to Inherited Danger, book two of the Dawning of Power trilogy, a podcast novel written and read by Brian Rathbone. For more information, maps, and additional downloads, visit brianrathbone.com. Thank you for listening. Chapter 13 In the absence of drive and purpose, talent can remain forever undiscovered. Vitreous Oliver, Sculptor The reality of her mother's murder settled in slowly, inexorably, like the measured bead of a chisel being driven into her soul. How could anyone be so wicked? What had her mother and aunt done to deserve such hatred? Deep down, though, other questions haunted her. Was it because of her? Because of something she did? Was she to blame for their deaths? Perhaps if she had done something differently, her mother and aunt would still be alive. Nothing could bring them back, she knew that. But the pain was now fresh as if the loss had been only yesterday. She wept for the hole in her world, the place they should have filled. Then she felt a feeling of peace wash over her, as if they were safe and happy, and with her. She wondered if it was her imagination that conjured the smell of roses. But then she decided it didn't matter. It brought her joy and absolution. Covered in sweat and grime, Strom ran the file along the last tooth of the final gear. Finally, they were ready to assemble his machine, and all he could do was hope it would work. Nagging fears of failure made his stomach ache. Hard work helped to keep his mind from worry, and he poured himself into the task. If his boiling machine did not pour glass then it would not be due to a lack of effort. I think it's ready to go on the shaft, Gustad said. You've done an excellent job. Now it's time to put your idea to the test. Are you ready? I'm ready, Strom replied after he secured the final gear in place. With dread, he grabbed the handle and started to crank. Slowly, the crucible began to turn. After cranking the crucible back to the upright position, Strom filled it with sand and placed a bowl beneath it. Trying to be as smooth as he could, he cranked the handle and simulated the pour. Just a little too fast, Milo said. It accelerates the pour too soon. I can't believe it works at all, Osborne said. Strom ignored Osborne's comment determined to find a way to slow the initial part of the pour. What if we cut off the first part of the strap and stitch on something thinner? Then it won't accelerate much until it reaches the thick strap, he said. Milo produced a sack made of strong but thin material, and he cut a length from it. After a few more tests pouring sand, Milo calculated the length of strap to be replaced. Stitching the light material and leather proved to be difficult, but Gustad showed Strom how to use an awl to make holes in the leather. After a few more test pours, 
Milo declared the pouring machine ready for a test with real glass. They were running out of sand, and Strom felt the pressure. When Osborne pulled the crucible from the furnace, he performed his practiced movements and placed the rod on Strom's machine. When he went to secure the strap, though, the heat was too much, despite his thick leather gloves. By the time the strap was attached, the glass had already cooled too much. Don't despair, young Strom. No one designs machines without flaws. The real challenge is to overcome those flaws. We'll just find a way to fix it and try again. Eventually, we will succeed. How much sand do we have left? Osborne asked. The modest room Katrin had been provided within the inner sanctuary offered little in the way of distraction. She was glad when Mother Gwendolyn arrived, if only for something new to think about. I hope the morning has greeted you kindly, Mother Gwendolyn said as she led Katrin through a maze of corridors. I've had a great deal to consider, but I'm feeling better about things. Thank you. I'm sorry to burden you further, but time rushes away from us, and there is much we must learn, Mother Gwendolyn said, and Katrin nodded. Much of the information we have regarding ancient times is isolated and without context, which makes it exceedingly difficult to give any of it credence. But there is something I've benefited from personally, and I would like to share it with you. I think perhaps it will help you see more clearly. Please, go on, Katrin said, eager for anything that might give her direction. She felt lost in a sea of critical decisions she wasn't prepared to make. It's called a viewing ceremony, and I find it helps me focus when I'm unable to resolve a debate or conflict. Would you like to try? What does it involve? I mean, it's not painful, is it? Katrin asked, feeling silly. And Mother Gwendolyn laughed. Her laugh was like the tinkling of fine chimes, and it set Catherine's heart at ease. No, child, it's not painful. The viewing chamber is a very special room with two adjoining chambers. A group of specially trained monks will gather in each of the chambers, and they will perform an ancient melody. It's actually quite enchanting. Yes, I think I would like that. Thank you. Catherine said, and she wondered what she was getting herself into. The opportunity was certainly too good to pass up, but the Catherines had already proven full of surprises, and she wondered what the viewing ceremony would reveal. When they arrived at their destination, a hallway with three elaborately painted doors, they were greeted by a large gathering of robed and hooded monks standing in silence. Catherine smiled realizing Mother Gwendolyn had assumed she would say yes. With a simple nod, Mother Gwendolyn sent the monks to their respective chambers. As they filed through the outer doors that bore images of colorful birds, Mother Gwendolyn led Katrin through the center door. This door was painted to resemble the night sky, which Katrin noted contained no comets. Within the chamber stood a large throne-like chair that was made of a glossy umber stone streaked with veins of silver and obsidian. 
directly across from it at eye level, was a round hole in a stone wall, beyond which lay open sky. On either side of the chair were twisted orifices that presumably led to the outer chambers where the monks awaited. Mother Gwendolen led her to the seat. Katrin climbed atop the cold, hard stone, doubting she would be able to get comfortable enough to meditate. Try to clear your mind of all things. The old writings say, ride the vibrations and you will be free. I don't think I've ever achieved the desired effect, but it has been helpful nonetheless. When you feel you are finished, just ring this bell, Mother Gwendolyn said, and she produced a delicate pewter bell from her robes. It bore the figure of a fairy clinging to the bell, and its ring seemed impossibly loud and clear. Katrin placed the bell on the arm of the throne. Icy wind gusted through the opening in the wall, and Katrin shivered, wishing she had worn something more substantial than her leather jacket over a homespun top and leggings. Removing the heavy shawl from her shoulders, Mother Gwendolyn wrapped it around Katrin with a benevolent smile. Pulling the shawl tighter, Katrin soaked in its warmth. I will leave you now. May you find that which you seek, Mother Gwendolyn said and she left the room, shutting the door behind herself. The melody drifted to Katrin slowly as she sorted her thoughts and sought her center. A different cadence and tone came from each side, but they merged into seamless harmony. Not the disjointed noises of two independent groups, but intentional and purposeful diversification. The two dissimilar parts formed a perfect whole. Drifting on the music, she let it carry her from her burdens. As she let her spirit float, the drums began. Starting softly, they grew to a pounding crescendo, resonating in a way that seemed impossible, and Katrin could feel them more acutely than she could hear them. The thunder of them rattled the foundation of her being and seemed to shake loose the dust and clutter from her soul. It was as if she were shedding a dead skin, and she experienced herself as a wave of energy rather than her physical form. It was glorious and terrifying. Despite the exultation of these new feelings, she grew frustrated. Surely some revelation should have come to her by now, some inkling of what path she should take. But the ecstasy was void of insight and she felt as if she were missing something critical, something just out of reach. Concentrating, she squeezed her eyes shut but still struggled in vain. After numerous attempts, she relented, her will spent. With a forlorn sigh, she resolved to ring the bell. But as she leaned back too fast, the back of her head smacked against the unyielding stone with a hollow thunk. Her jaw dropped and her eyes flew open with the shock of pain. Her vision focused on the sky beyond the opening in the wall. It was beautiful and inviting, and in her next breath she was soaring through it. Her awareness flew among the clouds, and she reveled in the glory of existence for a time, but the strangeness made her wary. 
She wondered at her lack of form and realized a silvery thread of energy trailed her, like a strand of gossamer leading back to her physical vessel. The confining hulk that usually held her awaited in the viewing chamber. She could feel the connection, and she clung to it. Though she enjoyed the invigorating freedom, she knew she would need to return to her prison of flesh. She would be lost without it. Lost. Like a sudden realization that one is falling, Katrin snapped to her senses and realized she had no idea where she was. Her consciousness soared across the heavens with alarming speed, the land sliding away beneath her. Pristine snow gave way to a brilliant display of late-fall colors. The coastline of what Katrin guessed was the Inland Sea came into view, and she soared closer, changing course by the sheer force of her will. The rocky coast was breathtaking from above. Sunlight danced off the sea, and the land rose in sharp contrast, a myriad of details and textures. Though she was tempted to orient herself from what she remembered of the maps and where the Inland Sea was, she realized it was too risky. She needed some confirmation. With trepidation, she soared over the waves, hoping she would not get lost over endless seas. Lulled by the monotony of the homogenous waves, Katrin felt herself being drawn into a strange, trance-like state, and she fought to keep her concentration. When rocks jutted from the waters below her, Katrin felt a thrill of expectation. And when a smooth and sandy coastline materialized in the hazy distance, she soared with confidence. Now she was almost certain she was somewhere near Falk, and she prepared to find her way back to Omahold. But a curious sight drew her attention. Like a trail of ants, a line of people snaked along the coast and through the plains and it was difficult at first to determine which way they moved. South, Katrin decided. Intrigued by the masses, her curiosity won out over her desire to return to her body, and she flew along, letting the trail of humanity guide her, until she came upon a place crawling with activity. Devastation greeted the eye. It looked as if the side of a mountain had fallen onto the plains and the mass of its rubble could obscure entire towns. Rich, brown soil, newly exposed to the sun, looked like a gaping wound on the land, and as Katrin looked closer, she saw a thin line of people climbing toward an area framed with fallen timber. The obviously man-made fortifications stood out in stark contrast to nature, even in its disorder. Willing herself closer, she hovered above the odd structure. It was not tall, in fact, it seemed only to form a stable platform. At its center, though, lay the partially exposed skeletal remains of a giant creature. Katrin became excited when she realized this was the beast the monks had reported, and she tried to commit as many details as possible to memory for the sake of Brother Vaughn. It seemed odd that there were no workers busy uncovering the rest of the beast, and she looked once again at the line of people. They continued past the man-made plateau, as if the ancient remains were of no interest. They wound around the mountain to the opposite face. The southern face was nearly whole, with one notable exception. 
Nearly halfway to its peak, a large section of rock had been torn asunder, leaving a gaping chasm. An eerie glow emanated from the chasm, and it was there the throng congregated, their faces reflecting the ominous light. Fear and uncertainty crawled across Katrin's consciousness, and she could almost feel the hairs on her physical body rise. A faint urging called her back to her body, but she pulled away, needing to see the source of the bizarre light. She hovered closer to the chasm, past the enraptured faces until she was directly above it. There, staring back at her, was the face of a goddess, larger than a giant and throbbing with inner light. The sight shocked her, and for a few moments she wondered what it could possibly be. When the realization came, it blotted out all thought and all other possibilities. It left no room for doubt or conjecture. It was as certain as the sunrise. It was one of the statues of Terhilion, the bane of humanity. Cold realization after cold realization slammed into her consciousness, and she reeled in horror, suddenly wishing she had been more attentive during her lessons. Before her was the greatest threat to ever face her world, and it looked as if the Jean were determined to exhume it. If what she had been taught was true, the statue would charge in the light of Istra and Vestra, then it would detonate. She did not know what the scale of the explosion would be, but the vision her mind created made her quail. A deceitful weapon, left over from a war long past, once again threatened all life on Godsland. A strange wrongness floated to Katrin along the thread of energy that led back to her body. It felt of worry, anxiety, and mostly fatigue. With a final glance at the face of Istra and the bones of the beast, she stored as many details as she could, then started her retreat. Intent on returning with all due haste, she raced along her thread. It was taut and straight as the path of an arrow, and she let the tension of it guide her. The resonance of the melody changed suddenly and her thread of energy wavered and went slack. It was a frightening sensation, but it only lasted a moment before the harmony became strong once again. Different, but strong. With renewed vigor, she pulled herself along, the land rushing away beneath her. Once she moved back to the east side of the inland sea, she soared north. <laughs> Katrin cast about her, trying to locate the source of the strange disembodied voice when it sounded again. <laughs> this time, Katrin sensed the direction the noise came from, and she scanned with her senses. A male energy, full of mischief and humor, soared alongside her. She could not see anything to indicate the presence, but she could feel it, taunting her constantly flitting away from her scrutiny. Consumed by her desire to return to Omahold, Katrin tried to ignore the entity and continued watching the horizon. But the land seemed to crawl past her now, as if she were flying through mud. The impish presence followed her, and she felt a change come over it. Shame. Grief. 
regret, and anger all flowed freely. The feelings struck her, and she felt pity. No one should have to feel so much pain without consolation. And that was the prevailing undercurrent. No one cares. No one will comfort me. No one loves me. I am no one. It was painful, even from the outside, and Katrin changed her approach. She poured love and understanding toward the wayward energy, and it responded to her with disbelief. But she continued to convey kindness and caring. Confusion, helplessness, and a deep wave of regret slammed into Katrin. She felt as if the entity were resisting someone. Not her. It was someone else. She could feel the presence by proxy through the reactions of the anonymous energy. The reactions were childlike, and Katrin suddenly realized she was dealing with a young energy, one that was being coerced. She decided anonymity was a barrier that hampered communication, but when she asked for a name, she received shame and grief in return. No name. Katrin tried to understand how it would feel to have no name and she was overcome with compassion. Everyone deserved a name, and she was determined to name the energy, to give him something to hold on to, something around which he could build his own identity. A name was more than a label or moniker. It was the center of one's perception of one's self. It was indelible, and once again could never be taken away. All of this she conveyed while searching for the right name. Prios, a name of power. Of that, Katrin was certain. She wasn't certain it had any true meaning, but to her, it meant strong of heart. She conveyed this as best she could, and the response she received was one of great honor, but it was short-lived. Pain, fear, regret. Confusion washed over Katrin, but now it was her own. The world seemed to twist and veer beneath her, and the link to her body went slack. In an instant, it became tangled and knotted, and she tumbled out of control. Panic clutched her, and she could feel the wrongness in her tangled lifeline. Prios battered her with energy, and whenever she seemed to have righted herself, he sent her spinning again. Light and dark fluctuated around her, as if the sun and moon had suddenly sped up, and she was helpless to stop it. In a desperate attempt to dissuade him, she sent forth the mental image of her mother, and, more generally, the feeling of unconditional love. The feeling she got when she delved into her earliest memories. Mother. Safety. Warmth. Caring. All wrapped up in single-minded intent. Searing pain, loss, regret. The feelings pummeled her until she relented, and she realized that Prios had relented as well. He was gone. No trace of his energy remained. But the damage was done. Katrin had no idea where she was or how to find her way back. To make matters worse, she sensed pain from her physical body and suddenly knew she was near death. 
If she did not get back soon, she would never be able to return. It was not just a feeling she had. She could almost hear someone shouting the words at her, repeatedly, like a mantra. Scanning the landscape below, she saw no snow, only brownish farmland, and she guessed she was still in the south. A glimpse of the sun gave her a bearing on direction, as it said at its normal, inexorable pace. She moved north with all the speed she could muster, but the tangle of energy still connected to her body slowed her even as it grew weaker. Snow appeared on the ground below, and her hope was renewed. When the northern coast of the Greatland loomed on the horizon, she urgently turned east. Mountains pierced the clouds ahead, and she could almost feel the closeness of her body as it called to her in its final throes of life. She felt herself begin to waver and focused all the energy that remained in her. The vibrations took on new intensity, as if the monks knew she was preparing one final attempt to return. Soaring toward the mountains, she moved faster, now guided by the pain and tingling of her physical form. She was close, and the closer she drew, the more intensely she felt the discomfort. It was strange to seek out pain when her instinct was to avoid it, but it was preferable to the encroaching numbness. In this case, pain meant life, and she hurtled toward it. Cold stone stood before her, an impenetrable barrier, but she passed through it without the slightest lessening of speed. It granted her passage without complaint. Solid rock gave way to a labyrinth of corridors and rooms, both natural and man-made. Katrin paid them little mind as she struggled to close the distance separating herself from her dying body. Only when she entered a vacuous hall filled with relics and tomes from a time long past did she even notice her surroundings, and the myriad of curious items within the hall impressed themselves upon her mind. The next instant brought relief. As she pierced the walls of the viewing chamber, her body sat in ashen stillness upon the stone seat, and as she drew close, it took on a bluish hue. Her consciousness slammed into her physical form with jarring impact, and she struggled to orient herself, questing for the remembrance of her form. Her body no longer seemed to fit, as if it could not contain her, but she forced herself into its confines. She had expected great amounts of pain, but her limbs were leaden and she was unable to move. Numbness nearly claimed her, and she made herself draw a deep breath. It became more of a choke, but she did begin to breathe again. Her vision was clouded and dark, and though she noticed shadowy forms moving around her, she could identify no one. Sounds collided with her senses, but she could make sense of none of it. The only thing that mattered in the world, at that moment, was breathing. With each breath, the tingle of her flesh grew and the pain charged in behind it. Katrin welcomed the pain. She embraced it. Cramps, burning agony, and sharp pangs were all wonderful and delicious. She felt them acutely and relished them. As her breathing grew to a steady rhythm, her senses returned, her eyes focused, and she was stunned to see Benjen, 
his head completely shaved. He knelt before her with tears in his eyes. He must have sensed her return to cognizance because he rushed forward to hug her. Thank the gods you've come back, he whispered, and Katrin returned his hug with her unwieldy arms. She tried to speak, but her throat was so parched that she feared it would crack apart. Mother Gwendolyn appeared with a mug of water. She looked horrible, as if she were afflicted with some ghastly illness. Her eyes were sunken, her skin was nearly as ashen as Katrin's, but a weary smile crossed her face. She handed Katrin the mug and waited for her to drink. Katrin's hands shook as she tipped the mug, and sweet water dribbled over her lips. There was only a small amount in the mug, but it was like a cup of pure life, and it rejuvenated her as it moistened her dehydrated throat. She handed the drained mug to Mother Gwendolyn and wordlessly begged for more. Another mug was handed to her, and it contained little more than the first, but Katrin was glad to have it. You must rest now, Mother Gwendolyn said, but her voice cracked and sounded raw. Katrin realized for the first time that she was wrapped in warm blankets. Benjen scooped her up, blankets and all as if she were little more than a fallen leaf. Mother Gwendolyn guided him to a sleeping room, and he gently laid her down on the bedding. Once he was certain she was comfortable, he retrieved another mug of water from Mother Gwendolyn, into which he stirred a pinch of brown powder. Drink this. It'll help you rest. Not yet. I have dire news, Katrin croaked as she sat up but Benjen forced her down with only a slight push of his finger. He placed the mug in her hands and crossed his arms over his chest. Whatever it is, it can wait until morning. Too weak to argue, Katrin drained the mug for the sake of her thirst as much as anything else. Within moments, she fell into a deep sleep, haunted by visions of a glowing face. That concludes this episode of Inherited Danger. Thank you for listening. For the latest news and new releases, be sure to check out patioracket.com.